If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We want to pick up our study in verse 12 and take it through verse 28. Paul's exhortation of love. Now, Paul comes to the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians. As we've been looking at this theme, the model church, the church that was young, remember Paul spent uh, three Sabbath weeks there with them. They were a vibrant church. They were a church on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul spoke of them as the model church. Now, in the last two weeks, we taught on the rapture of the church, that Jesus will return one day uh, soon for his glorious church. We studied that he will first take the dead in Christ first. And then Paul said, those who remain, Paul believed that the rapture of the church would happen in their time. He says, those that will remain will be caught up together uh, with them in the air to meet Christ. It's a beautiful picture. We would be with Christ forever and ever. Now, the conclusion last week, we looked at the day of the Lord. And so we need to understand that the rapture of the church must first take place. And then this day of the Lord speaks of the seven years of tribulation. Now we mentioned this verse, if you'd like to run with it, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. This seven-week period called the Great Tribulation, it cannot come into being until the Antichrist makes a covenant with the world leaders. And that's what Daniel speaks about in 9.27. He's going to make this agreement, this league, this covenant for one week or seven days. And it's interesting. Daniel says they're looking at seven days of peace and safety or seven years of peace and safety. Scholars call this the seven years of tribulation. We mentioned Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Jacob's trouble. We believe that the seven years of tribulation is to woo back the nation of Israel. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Paul spoke of them in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And he speaks about that restoration, that God is not finished with the nation of Israel, and that they will come to saving grace, but many are going to die because of this seven-year period. We understand this seven-year period. There's going to be 21 major judgments. We study this from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18. It's called the tribulation time. There's going to be seven sealed judgments. There's going to be seven trumpet judgments. And then, lastly, the seven bowl or vile judgments that are actually going to be poured out upon the earth. And so a time is coming that man has never seen. Paul explained all that in the last two weeks as we were sharing. Now he comes to the conclusion of the letter. And you're going to see Paul's heart here now. I mean, he's given them doctrine. He's encouraged them. And now he comes to this place as he exhorts them. But I want you to see this. He exhorts them with love and compassion and grace. To exhort means to encourage, to console, to comfort. And that's Paul's heart. And so in these last verses, Paul's going to speak about abstaining from evil, to embrace the good that God provides. He exhorts in dealing with social, personal, and spiritual attitudes, also relationships towards others. The apostle lays down a few guide, guiding principles for believers to follow toward their spiritual leaders. We're going to see that immediately. Towards their fellow Christians. And then he speaks about our concern for the weak and the helpless ones. Now, this weak ones are those that are spiritually weak, especially, but those that might be weak physically. And Paul says, our concern for them. And so, in all reality, Paul's concern for all believers. So important to see this. So let's begin here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse 12 with me. Paul begins, and we urge you, brothers... Uh, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. And so Paul's speaking about the leadership there at the church at Thessalonica. The leadership in any church, we should have this concern for them. We should recognize them, and it's in a special way. So Paul begins with this 
famous cry of his. He says, we love. He says, we beg you here. Or I beg you. The Greek also says, I'm asking you. Or I'm praying for you, my brothers and sisters. And then he says, recognize them. The word to recognize means to know them. Know those who labor, those who serve in the ministry for you. The word labor, those who serve in toiling. The ministry is not easy. Those that serve in fatigue. Again, the, the ministry can be tiresome. Those that serve in weariness. One of the things we tell the leadership here is, listen, when you're tired, you're burned out, let us know. Take a break. Take some time off. Because, you know, you're, you're allotted. So many times we just get so busy. Know them, Paul says, who serve you. Recognize them. Those who serve you in the Lord, those that admonish you, listen, those that warn you in Christ Jesus, those that caution you in the Lord. In other words, these are your teachers. And that's one of the things that we like to do here at Calvary Chapels, teach the Word of God. It is so important. Now, I want you to turn to a passage, leave a marker there. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. In verse 17, and there Paul encourages young Timothy. He was a young pastor himself. And so his encouragement here in this little section, honor the elders of the church. We need to be concerned of those that have rule over us. And so Paul, as he's directing it to the church at Thessalonica, listen to what he writes to young Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. They labor in word and doctrine. Now, the honor that I desire from, from you, as I would suggest, this is what Paul would desire, that you pray for us. And what an honor to be prayed for, to be loved, and to be shown grace and mercy. Many times in the ministry, people will come up, Pastor Bob, is there anything I can do for you? And my reaction quickly, pray for us. Pray for us. Because it's not easy. Pray for the pastors that God has given you. And this is what Paul's telling Timothy. This is what Paul's telling the church at Thessalonica. Look at verse 18 now. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so Paul said, listen, the pastor is also capable of a salary. And so those that would have been ruling there at the church at Thessalonica, those that would have been ruling there at Ephesus, because that's where uh, Timothy was at. But Paul draws this from the Old Testament. If you're taking notes in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, the ox was not to be muzzled, you know, that muzzle that they would place over the mouth area. But imagine the poor oxen going for eight or ten hours and not having any substance, not having any grain or any water. And so if the oxen was allowed the grain, what about the leadership? What about those that have rule in the church? That's what Paul is saying. And then in verse 19, just this little portion, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except, and he makes a provision. There's two or three witnesses. Now, pastors are not perfect. I cringe when, when we hear of a pastor that's fallen. It happens even in Calvary Chapel. We go back to conference and it never fails. Pastor Chuck will share, uh, one of ours have fallen away. And so nobody's exempt. And that's why we pray. We pray, we ask God's protection, we ask for God's grace. Paul understood this. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework here out of verse 12. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, Paul personally thanked the church at, the, at Philippi, that is, for their generosity towards him. Now, if you recall the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Paul was a tent maker by trade. We know that he made tents with Priscilla and Aquila. Historically, we know that Paul would make tents all day, and then at night he would go preaching. And so Paul really never asked for subsistence because Paul was a traveling preacher. Paul was a, a planter of churches. 
And we know that he wrote at least 13 epistles, if not uh, Hebrews is the 14th one. But yet the church at Philippi took it under, unto themselves to sustain Paul. And Paul is so grateful at the conclusion of the letter to the Philippians. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the gifts. And Paul was able to use it to distribute it and to get the gospel out further. That's the whole purpose. And I, I pray that whatever church you attend, if it's this church, support it. If you go to another church, support it. If you're a Christian, we're called to support. And maybe you don't have the finances, but you do have the power to pray. That's the beautiful part. Now he goes on. He's still with the leaders. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 13. And to esteem them. Speaking of the leadership. To esteem them very highly. But how do we esteem them? Should we give them higher positions? Should we give them more finances? Now, if the finances are there, you can do that. If there is a position to move up, it can be done. But I love what Paul says. And to esteem them very highly in love. That's agapeo love, for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And so the Greek here, uh, to esteem them, we think of esteeming somebody, we lift them up. But listen to the Greek, to count them highly as leaders. That's the translation, to count them highly as leaders. Because they teach you, listen, they pray for you. They lay hands on the sick, etc., etc., And all of this is done because of agape love. Agape love that God has placed upon you. By this, Paul says at the conclusion here, you bring peace to your hearts. Peace to your hearts. I mean, after all these years that I've been, you know, away from the leadership at my home church, I was at Calvary Chapel West Covina, and now it's Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. But it's Pastor Raul. I still encourage him in prayer. Pastor Chuck in Costa Mesa, encourage him in prayer. And he's going to be speaking about that as we continue. Look at verse 14 now. He goes on, and we exhort you. He says, brethren, warn he says, those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. That last portion, underline it, because it is not easy to be patient. In fact, patience is a virtue. Patience is something that God teaches you. And so here in verse 14, brothers and sisters, we beg you. And that's that word beseech you. It's also the word we exhort you. But it's also translated, we pray for you. Warn those who are disorderly in Christ. You're always going to have those that are unruly. You're always going to have disorder in the church. And so Paul warns, warn those who have disorder, that are disorderly in Christ. In other words, and then he says, comfort them. The word to comfort, console them, encourage them, comfort them. Those who are faint-hearted, I love this, faint-hearted in spirit, hold fast, hold up those who are spiritually or physically weak. Just because I'm blessed, just because you're blessed, spiritually I'm in there or physically I'm in there. There's always those in the body of Christ that are struggling spiritually. Always those in the body of Christ that are struggling physically. We're to uphold them, Paul says. And then he says here, listen to this now. Be patient, church. Be patient with everyone. The word to be patient means endure them, bear them. Listen to this. Suffer with them. It's been said that the church is the only army that shoots their own wounded. Some of you have been shot. I've been shot. We're to bear with them. We're to suffer with them. We're to encourage them. And so many times, if I'm doing okay, forget everybody else. That's not what Paul says here. He uses his word exhortation. Brothers and sisters, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. I think it's beautiful when you see Christians praying for other Christians. Christians hugging a Christian and saying, hey, listen, come and cry on my shoulder. And mean it. And be patient with them. 
Maybe they're not as strong as you are. Maybe they're not spiritually as strong. Be patient with them. Patience. If you're struggling with patience, let me tell you something. Ask God, Lord, give me patience. Pray, Lord, give me patience. Now, let me warn you. Because patience brings trials. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, temptations. God is building, listen, patience in you. And so we're asking for a, you know, a bowlful, if you may. But we need to trust the Lord. Now, Paul reached out to the strong, to the weak, to the Jew, to the Gentile. I want you to turn to a passage. We have to look at it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to through 23. Now, if anybody understood caring for others outside of his camp, it was this Paul the Apostle. Now, we know that Paul was very Jewish. We know that he was very trained in the law. In fact, many believe that Paul was a doctor of the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Paul, as soon as he entered a city, the first thing he would do is go to a synagogue. And usually it got him in trouble. They usually lowered Paul out of the city gates, you know, the city walls that is in a basket. Or they took him out through the back door because they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. And then Paul had the audacity after being run out of cities, then he would go to Gentiles. Didn't bother Paul. He would do anything to win one to Christ. And so right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse 19. And I'm going to read out of the NIV. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I made myself a servant. What Paul is saying here, I want to serve Jew, Gentile, Greeks, barbarians. It didn't matter to Paul. Why? For Christ's sake. He goes on into verse 20, speaks about his own people. To the Jews I became like a Jew. To win the Jews to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Paul was free from the law, but he would go right into the synagogue. It didn't phase him. So that as to win those under the law, Paul would preach to the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Paul went right to the synagogue. In verse 21, to those not having the law, speaking of the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under, listen to the new law now, Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Paul was not under the law anymore. He knew it. He had been set free. But Paul would go to those. Didn't phase them. Okay, the Jews don't want to hear. Let's go to the Gentiles. He would eat their foods. He would drink their drinks. He would sleep in their homes. And when Paul would go back to the Jews, he was smart. He would go to the cleansing rites because he knew the Jews would reject him. He'd go back and do the Levitical law just to win anybody to Christ. I like that. So Paul became all things to everybody. And then he says in verse 22 and 23, and I want you to think of the weak things. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save one, that one would come to saving grace. That was Paul's whole purpose. In other words, I don't like going to the prison. That's not my domain, but I'll go there to minister to them. I don't want to go over here to the barrios. I have no idea. You know, somebody might throw something at me. Some, it might be dangerous. But you know what? I want to get the gospel out. I want to get the gospel out. I want you to think of that. And then Paul says in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. Wherever the gospel was preached, Paul would share in that blessing. Now, I want you to think of the hard places to minister. I mentioned the prison or the jail. I don't have a problem. Over here, the barrio, I don't have a problem. And most of you probably would not have the problem. But would you ever consider going to a colony of lepers? Oh, Pastor Bob, that's, that's right. That's what Paul's speaking about. Would you ever consider going uh, to the hospital that only works with those that have AIDS? Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to contract. 
This is what Paul's saying. Man, I'll go wherever I need to go. I remember years ago, a missionary friend of ours, in fact, it's Tony Freeman that's uh, in Guanajuato now, him and his wife. But when they first came after the Jesus movement, they were on fire for the Lord. And they were out of Illinois, out in that Chicago area. And man, they just wanted to reach the street people. And I remember one day, Tony's telling me the story when they used to go to the strip clubs. I go, whoa, wait a minute, you're a Christian now. He goes, we would go into the strip clubs because the girls would ask us, come and minister to us. Nobody comes and ministers to us. And so he asked the Lord, the Lord said, go. He went into the strip club, and I want you to think about this. The stage area is there, and he would go up to the front, and him and his wife would take two chairs and turn around. And that way they could minister to the crowd. And then the girls would come after dancing and they'd sit there. Now some people would say, you have no business there. But Tony says, I wanted to go to minister to anybody. And that's the key, church. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share. Didn't they get mad at Jesus because he went to the prostitutes? Didn't they get mad at Jesus because he went uh, to the publicans, which were the tax collectors? Didn't they get mad at Jesus because he went to the wine-bibbers, the drunks, the alcoholics? Didn't face them. Oh, he's not supposed to go there. Jesus went where the hurting are at. And that's what Paul's saying. I become all things to all men. And I just want to get the gospel out. Let's go back to our text now. Look at verse 15, back in 1 Thessalonians. And then Paul brings this beautiful logic. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for yourself, Paul says, and for others and for all. See that no one pays back evil for evil. You see, in the world, that was our whole concept. You did something bad to me, then I start thinking, I'm going to get back at you. And that was our logic. That was our BC days. And so he's so beautifully, see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always strive. Listen, strive to do good for yourself and for others. Be an example of a true believer with love, with agape from Christ. It's not easy when somebody attacks you. It's not easy when somebody hurts you. It's not easy when somebody accuses you. Some of you have been there. I've been there. Turn with me. There's a beautiful passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. If you're familiar with this passage, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. It's called a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is addressing in those three chapters, his disciples. What is a disciple? You're a disciple, a learner of Christ, a student of Christ, a pupil of Christ. And he gives them practical living. Watch this now. So he says in verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Look at the Sermon on the Mount now. Chapter 5, verse 43. Again in the NIV, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son uh, to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain uh, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Uh, I want you to see the picture there. It's like we've been seeing the tornadoes all over the Midwest. And it never fails. They'll show a, a row of houses. They're knocked out across the street, not one house. The ones that baffle me is you'll, you'll see five houses in a row wiped out, then it skips a house, and then two more houses. It rains on the just and on the unjust. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? You see, the tax collectors would be very, you know, friendly to you. They would love you. Why? Because they wanted your finances. They would tax you. Oh, how's your mom? How's your grandma? How's your daughter? How's your son? Pay the taxes. That's basically what they were doing. Look at verse 47. And if you greet only your brethren, only the body of Christ, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do so? 
Do we just reach out, listen, to our own? Or do we reach out in the highways and the byways? Do we reach out to the lost? Then he concludes in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect is complete. Now, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. I'm not complete. We are being completed. I am not complete until I enter the pearly gates and Jesus says, well done, the good and faithful servant. Am I perfect? No, I'm forgiven. And so it's important to see this. And God is perfecting us. But pray for those that persecute you. Reach out to those that hate you. Let me tell you something. I'd rather pray that other prayer that King David prayed in the Old Testament. Lord, break their teeth. He actually prayed like that. Lord, break their cheekbones. Now, that's the prayers I like. But no, the Lord says, pray for them. But Lord, they wrote me a letter. Pray for them. But Lord, they said, pray for them. I tell you what, don't raise your hand. But when Saddam Hussein was doing the things that he was doing, did you pray for him? Well, no, he's a dirty rat. Didn't Jesus die for him? Think about that. Well, I don't like those people that are running for office right now. I don't care if you don't like them. Jesus said, pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Pray for them. It's not an easy place to be, church. I mean... <laughs> There were people throwing stones at, at Paul, and Paul would pray for them. Paul and Silas were, you know, in stocks, and they were being whipped there in the Philippian jail, and they were praying. They were singing praises. I don't like when Paul does that, because then he sets an example. He sets a precedence. You see, my flesh, your flesh, we want to retaliate. But he says here, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. It's a radical statement. And so Paul's encouraging the church at Thessalonica. And then let's go back to our text. Look at verse 16. And he's going to go through this series of small phrases here. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. The translation best, be glad, be joyful always. You mean through my trials? Be joyful always. I just got laid off from my job. Rejoice always. Pastor Bob, I just found out I have cancer. Rejoice always. It's not easy, church. It's not easy. But God has a plan. In James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Count it all joy. When you fall into various trials. Now I want you to mark down these two verses. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. Finally brothers and sisters. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says in Philippians 4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. How do I rejoice when, you know, my wife's in the hospital, the husband's in the hospital? How do I rejoice when my kid's up there in the hospital, your kid is up there in the hospital? How do I rejoice? How do I rejoice when I've visited, Pastor Jeff's visited, Pastor Jay has visited, when we've been there with a loved one from the church and they're, they're dying of cancer? How do I rejoice? The psalmist says, my strength cometh from the Lord. I'm always blessed with these people that they're dying. They're, they're in their sickbed. And we come to encourage them. And they turn it around. They encourage us. Where does that come from? But it's from the power of God's Holy Spirit. You know why they're rejoicing? Because they know they're going to go home to be with the Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In verse 17, he goes with this other phrase, pray without ceasing. Now, one of my commentaries said it's so beautiful. We know that uh, the word ceasing is having a consciousness of prayer. It's having this awareness of prayer always in one's heart. But listen to, uh, I think it was Wycliffe commentary. Prayer is attitude as well as activity. The attitude of the devotion to God without ceasing. If the activity can, uh, can attitude can. 
pray prayer without ceasing is having this awareness of prayer always in one's heart paul's illustration here his own command pray without ceasing we know that paul wrote at least 13 epistles 14 if you count the book of hebrews all of his epistles were scented with the fragrance of prayer oh i love that as i pray as you pray let it be scented with the power of God's Holy Spirit. And see, I can't do it. Neither can you. Write this verse down. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ. He is my strength. He is my buckler. He is my shield. And so I can do these things. There's times I don't know how to pray, uh, the Scripture says. But the Holy Spirit knows, even when I just grasp my hands and I just don't know what to say. You see, I go up to the hospital room and I see somebody in, in the hospital bed and, you know, they're not looking good. My prayer, Lord, heal them, bring them home. But what is God's prayer? What is God's desire? Is God using this to speak to his heart, her heart? Is God using this to speak to their family? There's a lot of issues. And so this is why we pray, Lord, what is your will? When my dad was dying, Lord, what is your will? When my father-in-law was dying, what is your will? Some of you have gone through the same. One of the greatest joys I have as a pastor is when somebody in our fellowship is dying, and it's usually of cancer, and we know they're dying. It's a matter of time. And then they tell me, Pastor Bob, this is what I'd like for you to do in my funeral service. That's hard. Tell them to sing these songs. Tell them to play these songs. I want you to preach. There's going to be non-believers at my funeral. Tell them about Jesus. Now, all these things I want to do, but I'm there to minister to them. And they're ministering to me. It's hard. It's a tough place. Only through the power of God. That's why non-believers can't handle it. Non-believers don't understand it. That's why Paul said, they're not dead. They're asleep in Christ. That's the beauty of it. And he goes on to this next little phrase. Look at verse 18. In everything, underline that. Not in some things, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. For the longest time, I only thought we were supposed to be thankful uh, on, you know, Thanksgiving in November. One time out of the year, right? And even that prayer was short and simple because you want to kill the bird. Well, he's already dead, but you want to devour him now. And then you want to watch the football games. But as Christians, in everything, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will. Always remember this, church. Be thankful in all things. God desires for us to be thankful because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for me. Listen to his will. His will, translated in the Greek, His will is His desire for me. Lord, what is it that you want for me? His will is His desire for me. How do I know that I'm doing God's will? The Bible calls us uh, to read, to study His word, and then to obey His word. James tells us, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. And there has to be application. And so to do the will of God is to obey his word. And as we study, as we read, as we obey God's word, his will in my life and in your life will come forth. That's God's desire for me. That's God's desire for you. In everything, give thanks. One of the challenges that I like to give is, you know, take out a piece of paper in your time of solitude with God. Take out a piece of paper in the time of, you know, you're going to, a devotional now. And then just make two columns. And in one column, put the blessings. And the other column, put your trials, your frustrations, the cursings that have come in your life. I can guarantee you, the blessings are always going to outweigh your trials. 
But see, when I see my trial, you see your trial, it's like, you know, a caravan. I only see the first one. I see a parade, and I only see that float right there. I don't know this one's coming. I, don't, I already forgot about the one that passed by. But God sees the whole parade. You have to trust God. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to spiritual things, small phrases again. Do not quench the Spirit. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. So here's the church at Thessalonica, a young, vibrant church. Do not quench the Spirit. I love this here. Do not extinguish, put the fire out of the Holy Spirit. But let the Holy Spirit have perfect reign in and through you. Let the Holy Spirit do His effective work in you. Now there's a beautiful text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. The church at Galatia, Paul got upset with them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has charmed you to go back to the law? They were set free. And all of a sudden, these Judaizers were coming in and saying, Jesus plus. And I'll tell you what, the book of Galatians will set you free. We've studied it here. I pray and hope that you've studied it. But in Galatians 3.3, Paul says, having begun in the spirit, are we going to finish now in the flesh? You begun in the spirit, finish in the spirit. But you see, that flesh nature is still there. Oh, that flesh man, that flesh woman wants to go back to Babylon, wants to go back to Egypt. The appetites of the world are always there. But you begun in the spirit, Paul says, finish in the spirit, not in the flesh. Quench not the spirit. And then he goes on to this next portion. And verse 20 and 21 go together. Do not despise prophecy. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Do not despise prophecy. Come not against prophecy. These are the predictions of God. If it's of God. Be careful with those that say, thus saith the Lord. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, thus saith the Lord. Now, I don't have a problem with that. But generally, 99.9, .9, if somebody comes up to you, thus saith the Lord, God has already spoken to you. They've just come and give you confirmation. But be careful with those. There's a lot of those out there. And then he says, if they do come to you with a prophecy, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. Test it. How do I test it? But by the word of God. Test it, prove it, examine it. Do this by the word of God. In 1 Corinthians, just take this down, chapter 14, verse 29, Paul says, where two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Test it. See if it's of the Lord. Here's a beautiful passage. In 1 John 4, 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Remember Paul warned the church at Corinth, be careful out there. There's another Jesus, there's another gospel, there's another spirit. Make sure you're tapping into the right one. I told this story before, I'll tell it again. Years ago, there was a beautiful lady back in, uh, you know, the East Coast, somewhere about the Pennsylvania area, and she had three kids. The lady was, you know, on welfare. Her car was beat up. Her kids, one of them was very sickly, needed attention. But she heard in a prayer meeting that she was at, thus saith the Lord, somebody here is going to go to the West Coast. And she received it. Nobody else said nothing. It must have been her. She gets in her poor vehicle, she drags her kids, gathers enough money, and she heads out to the West Coast, shows up at Calvary Chapel, West Covina. And they said, ma'am, what are you doing here? I mean, her car was falling apart. The kids were hungry. The one boy was sickly. They had to help them. They had to fix her vehicle. 
They had to give her money. They had to send her back. But she listened to, thus saith the Lord. I mean, we have to use practicality. God gave us a mind. Just because you eat Chinese food doesn't mean you're going to go to China. Use logic. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. We're getting close to lunch, that's why. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so these exhortations of love. Look at verse 22 now. This is a beautiful exhortation. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul's encouragement. You can feel the, the love here. Abstain. Refrain yourself. Hold oneself off from all form or appearance of evil. The word evil here is anything that's vile, anything that's wicked, anything that's harmful. Now, we're growing adults. Well, I wonder if that's evil. I wonder if that's evil. And we play mind games. Come on, we're not stupid. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And especially if you're the Christian, the Holy Spirit's telling you, no, Bob, no. But by nature, we want to go there. It's like the kid, don't get any cookies. Next thing you know, the hand's in the cookie jar. Next thing you know, there's chocolate all over. And what do they say? I didn't do it. Christians, abstain from every form of evil. Paul's encouragement. I'm reminded of Genesis 39. Joseph ran from sin. The Bible said even naked. Look at verse 23. Now Paul is going to bestow the blessings upon him. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is where we meet God in our spirit. Listen to this text. In verse 23, may the God of peace make you holy. The word is hagios. It means to be set apart, sanctified in every way. And may all your spirit, soul, and body preserved, be kept faultless, blameless until that day our Lord Jesus Christ comes again for his church. When we come into those pearly gates, I want to hear that phrase. And you want to hear that phrase. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the glory of the Lord. Verse 24 is special. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. I looked at that catchphrase. He's going to do what? But listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. Jesus Christ, who has called each and every one of you believers, he is faithful, who also is going to do it or complete it in your life. Two things that I see that God is going to do in your life. He's going to finish this work. Number one, he's going to finish the work in us by taking us home to be with him one day. And again, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Secondly, because we've accomplished and we entered the gates now, he will present each and every one of us to his heavenly father. And he will, we will be presented, excuse me, as his bride, as his church, as the body of Christ. Why? Because we are covered under the precious blood of Christ. We have been covered in the blood of the Lamb that was slain. We are the glorious church. You are the glorious church. Not because you go to Calvary Chapel or the, the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, or the Catholic Church. It's because you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've accepted the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And then Paul hits home for all pastors. Verse 25. Brethren, he's telling the church of Thessalonica, and I'm telling you this morning, the church at Calvary Chapel, brethren, pray for us. I like that. Any pastor will say this. If I can ask anything of you, pray for us. 
pray for us daily. As pastors, we desire to serve the Lord, to do God's will, obvious. And it's not going to be done without prayer. Please pray for the pastors of your church. Pray for the pastors and their families. Pray for the pastors and their wives. Pray for the body of Christ. I'll tell you what, again, Pastor Rawl, he'll come to my mind. Pastor Chuck, he'll come to my mind. My other pastor friends that I know, they'll come to mind. And so we pray for them. And so also are you. We have a prayer meeting here on Friday mornings at 10 o'clock. You're all welcome to come. I know some of you were. If you can't be here at 10 o'clock, try to remember on Fridays. Pray. A simple prayer. Lord, I want to pray in agreement with those that are at Calvary Chapel right now in the sanctuary praying. Pray. Beautiful, beautiful place. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, embrace all the church with a holy kiss. A holy kiss is a kiss on the cheek, not on the lips full-blown, you know. Be careful with young people. Be careful when in bigger churches, young men like to do this. Oh, sister in Christ, come here. Let me give you a holy kiss. Give him a holy slap. That's what he needs. <laughs> in Jesus' name, obviously. Now I want you to think about Paul here. Paul's speaking about Middle Eastern custom. In the Middle East, you still see it. I mean, they'll kiss each other on one cheek and then the other cheek. It's hard in the Western mind. I've told you the story. I have a good friend, Calvary Chapel, El Paso. Uh, Brother Ron, he's Jewish. He's born again of the Holy Spirit. And I forget because I don't go down there that often. And I'll see Ron. He goes, Pastor Bob, how you doing? First thing he does is kisses me on the cheek. I don't like men to kiss me on the cheek or anywhere. <laughs> but Ron, it's his heart. And when he kisses me, he says, Shalom, Bob. It's sincere. I appreciate it, but it's a shock value from the West. We're not accustomed to it. If you're not a kisser and a hugger, learn how to hug. Dads, it should begin at home with your kids, with your wife. It's good that your children see you hugging and kissing your wife. And it's good to hug in the Lord. And it should be done in a righteous manner. But there are some people that you have to watch. Now, this is beautiful. Verse 27. I want you to think of this. 1950 plus years later since this epistle's been written. Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The word charge here is a stronger meaning in the Greek. He says, I, char I charge you with this oath by the Lord that you read this letter to all the holy brothers and sisters, those that are uh, sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus. Now we know that Paul had plenty. Uh, we know that at least 13 epistles. How many times have these been read? Here's the the first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, here at Calvary Chapel, we're not accustomed just to read. But we're going to study the Word. We're going to dissect the Word. We're going to say, what does the Word mean to us? And so can you imagine for the, the last 1950 plus years, I, I've taught this book several times myself. Some of you have sat under uh, teachings of this or read it yourself. Imagine. I charge you, take an oath on this that this epistle would be read. Now, take down this verse. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul encourages young Timothy, and he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. Study. Be prompt in your study. Be diligent in, in your study. Perspire. Work at it. Toil at it. I love putting a message together 
But it just doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. You got to read it. You got to pray over it. You got to look at commentary. You got to ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want here? And there's passages I've come across, and you've been here when I say, I, I have struggled with this. I don't know what it means. Let the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, but rightfully dividing the word of truth. My desire is that I always bring forth the word of God. Not what Pastor Bob has to say, but what does the word of God, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me? And to the seven churches in Asia Minor, there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, take heed to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. Then Paul concludes it so beautifully. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, when we speak about the grace of God, we know that the grace of God is unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. But God gives us his grace when we come to the cross. Oh, the enemy likes to rip you off. You're not worthy to be saved. True. You're not worthy to go to heaven. True. But Jesus paid the price for you. You're washed again in the blood of the Lamb. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful with the grace of God that we don't take advantage of. Some people might ask, how much grace do I have? And the response is, how much grace do you need? You see the problem with our mentality. If I know I have enough grace, it'll take me to the edge of the mountains here which is about, what, 12, 15 miles, then I'm going to take advantage of that. But man, once I go through San Agustin Pass, grace is gone. Well, then I'm not going to go through the pass. Be careful with that logic. Why test? Why tempt the Lord? I just want to bask in His grace. Unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. But God gives us His grace. And so Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So be it. What a beautiful way. Now we're going to continue into 2 Thessalonians. But Paul's come to this conclusion of this model church as he's been sharing. We looked at the rapture of the church. We looked at uh, the day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation. And now this encouragement, these exhortations of love. 